Are you tired of relying on landmarks, smoke signals, and pump jacks to get to location? When you do use apps such as Google Maps, Waves, or Apple, they only get you in close proximity to the well site location, but figuring out how to get to the location often comes with its own headaches of navigating lease roads. And if you're a dispatcher managing a fleet, how do you show your drivers exactly where to go to get there? Getting lost while driving to locations is a common theme in our industry. Navigating through unnamed roads can be frustrating and brutal. In our industry where time's money, getting lost is anything but efficient and acceptable. In fact, oil field workers say they spend on average over 20 minutes a day lost on lease roads, if not hours. Sound familiar? I got some game-changing news for you right here, so listen up. Wellsite Navigator is introducing the new technology you've been asking for, lease road navigation. They've already mapped over 19,000 miles of oil field lease roads that don't appear anywhere else, and every week they're adding more. Wellsite Navigator is the most trusted, most downloaded oil field mobile app of all time. Founded almost 10 years ago as the first navigation app for the oil field, they've helped more than 100,000 oil field hands find millions of well sites in 22 states quickly, safely, and reliably. Most of their users come from word of mouth, so help spread the word. They're giving all Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast listeners, their first month free when you click on the link in the show notes. Plus, when you refer a friend, they get their first month free and you get a $10 Amazon gift card. Follow the link in our show notes to get started. Make your life easier. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. Very honored to have my guest today, Will Franklin, on because when you get kicked out of the private equity club, when someone will actually be seen with you, that's pretty cool. So, well, Will, welcome on. Thank you. I, uh, I, I, I questioned myself, but, uh, <laughs> but here I am. So now a lot of people will question me because it's the company that you keep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, Will, Walk us through your background. You're a Texas, you're a University of Texas guy. I won't that, hold that against you. Thank you. Um, where'd you go to work after that? Yeah, so graduated from UT and thought I would go to Wall Street. And instead, this little EMP company in Midland called me by the name of Parker and Parsley. And uh, uh, I, I'll be honest, I really wanted to go to Harvard Business School. And that was like my goal. I'd had that since high school. And I thought, you know what? There's a lot of people who apply to HBS from Wall Street. There's not very many who apply from Midland, Texas. So uh, I took a job working for uh, Parker and Parsley in their corporate development group in January of '95. So who were the people? Who were the people so, there? So Scott Sheffield was running it right. at the time. Yep. Um, Tim Dunn, who's our partner at yep. Lime Rock, was the CFO at the time, and right. the group that I was uh, was involved in was run by a guy by the name of Jay McIntyre, who's kind of gone on to do things primarily outside of the industry, but he was, he was running the, the group, but Tim Leach was there running engineering. Right. Uh, Tim Dove was there running an international strategy. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, uh, it's one of those great places to, to be from, uh, and, and probably what, would have been a great place to stay. <laughs> well, and, and Boone Pickens was the largest shareholder, right? At some point, was he already out at that point? Had they already... Well, because it was because Parker was Parsley the, was it was the Mesa, Mesa it was merger. The, well, so that's what formed Pioneer was the Mesa Parker and Parsley 
merger. And, and what so year I did left, that happen? I should know, but I don't. I'm, so I left in 96 and that happened maybe a year or two later okay. after I left. Okay. And yeah. And so, you know, I left and, you know, this, this is something we should all remember about early in our careers. You get really frustrated about things not going the way that you want them to go. You think you're not learning things. I went there thinking, I'm going to do mergers and acquisitions, but I'm going to do it from the buy side. And this is going to be great because I'm going to be doing deals. And instead, commodity prices rolled. We became the capital budgeting group, the divestiture group, the uh -huh. bank negotiating group, which guess what? All of that stuff is stuff that I use every day in my career. You don't do a, you don't do an M&A deal every day, but you're always working on those other items. And, uh, you know, but I, I didn't fully appreciate that at the time. Um, but it turned out to be a great experience, but I was like, this isn't what I want to do. By that point, I was married to my wife, Liz. We kind of joke, I'm, I'm in Midland from you know, start in January, mid-February, I have, uh, I've proposed to my now wife. Um, it didn't take long being alone in Midland, but, uh, but I made sure Hear I that got her ladies, out there with Dating me. tips from Chuck Yates needs a job. <laughs> Send you your go. man to Midland. You'll get your ring. Uh, so yeah. So, so we got married. Um, but where I was going with that was, you know, so as I was thinking about leaving and, uh, you know, things, things work funny. So Nine months into the job, the guy who had recruited me left to Enron and he called me and said, hey, why don't you come to Enron? And so I start entertaining this, okay, I'm going to go to Enron and I start interviewing and ultimately get an offer. And then I go back to Parker and Parsley. I'm like, okay, this didn't really work out. I'm going to go over to Enron. They're like, no, you need to stay. This is the place for you. Uh, and they gave me a slight raise. I mean, you know, the, the numbers are rounding errors for today, but, uh, they gave me, they gave it me a raise. It is still more I than I make today. There so, you go. Yes. Okay. Very yeah. fair. Very yep. fair. Uh, maybe not more than you spend, but, uh, but more than you make. <laughs> that's fair. So, uh, I stayed and that's another life lesson. It's like when your heart is gone, you probably should just go and be careful that you don't let, you know, kind of money talk too much. And so we well, stayed you know, a Navy SEAL, um, when they quit, they're allowed whatever five or 10 seconds or 15 seconds to change their mind. Did not but, know that. But the, 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 tr I've heard one of the trainers say, I've never seen someone change their mind and then make it through that, you know, once the heart's gone, it's yeah. gone. Yeah. It, it, it really is. So, uh, uh, and, and anyway, I learned that really early cause I stayed and it was a great place. Don't get me wrong. It was just my, my head was, I need to do X, Y, and Z. And I didn't think that I was getting X, Y, and Z. And as I said, I, I learned a lot more than I ever appreciated, but it took, took 10 years to look back on that period and say, that was a really meaningful period for my own internal growth. And that's just perspective. And so we, uh, so I left in 96, um, and, the prospects and the whole reason I brought up getting married was the prospects of going to New York with a wife who is a teacher and myself. I was like, okay, well, I don't want to live married with a bunch of roommates, but teachers don't right. make a lot of money. So that isn't going to contribute a lot to rent in New York city. Right. And so I had had an offer from Simmons and company coming out of undergrad and, and called Simmons back up and said, um, you know, would you have room for me? And, you know, it, thankfully they did. I was one of the last analysts at Simmons to work directly for Matt Simmons on a project, which is another one of those, you know, just kind of a classic individual in the industry who brought a ton of wherewithal, 
high class individual and somebody from whom you learn a ton. And, uh, yeah, I kind of lucked out getting to work on a project where he kind of came off the sidelines in order to help on something. And I worked directly for Matt at, uh, at Simmons for a little bit. Oh, wow. So who else is at Simmons at the time? Barry Donovan? Is Barry Barry was, Barry was there. Um, Joe Bob Edwards uh, was there. Uh, John Griggs was there. Uh, Nick Swika, the senior, not right. the, not over at, at Select Energy Services. Uh, ben Gwill um, was, was there. there. That's right. Yeah. So and pick, again, Pickering is yeah. So a Pickering, research. Dan yep. and I started. He started uh, uh, a month maybe before me. So uh, yeah, okay. we we joined very similar timelines. Uh, yeah, and you know uh, that's the nature of the industry, a really small industry, but also the nature of working at good places where you just wind up, you know, same thing. You go back to Parker and Parsley and all of those various people, and then you wind up at Simmons and where all those various people have kind of turned up. It's, uh, yeah, it's yeah, cool. just an amazing amount of talent. So a couple of years at Parker Parsley and then a couple the, of years, a couple of years at Simmons and, uh, and Simmons was also great, uh, because, Matt and that team had a great track record of getting people into HBS. So don't forget what one of my key drivers <laughs> was. So I really wanted to go to HBS. And uh, uh, so I did apply to two business schools, um, one unnamed place over on the West Coast that would have nothing to do with a person like me. You're probably a much better Stanford applicant than I am. I don't have that creative nature that they tend to look for. But Harvard said yes, luckily by the flip of a coin and God's blessing. Uh, yeah, I got into HBS. I remember Liz called me. The envelope was in her hands. I open envelopes with a envelope, a letter opener. My Old wife school. rips like things it. open. Right. Uh, and so an A always marries a Z. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, opposite. And that envelope is uh, is ripped open. I still have it somewhere in a, in a drawer. But uh, you know, she was excited for me. And and. Um, yeah, so let so me tell you my Harvard story. Please do. So everybody in the Yates family has always gone to Rice. My grandfather is the class of, I believe, 1930. Great aunt goes there. Mom and dad go there. Uncle goes there. So I'm expected to go to Rice. So I decide about sophomore year in high school, I'm going to Harvard. And this, of course, just scares the heck out of my mom. <laughs> my poor, young, sweet son's going to go off to the East Coast, marry Amy Carter, become some rabble-rousing liberal yeah. and all this. So dad comes to me. Dad's a smart guy. Dad comes to me and says, hey, I know you want to go to Harvard. You need to go visit it. You can't just show up on campus. I go, that's fair, Dad. I'll go. I'll go next summer. And dad goes, nah, you ought to go over Christmas break. And I'm like, sure. sure. Mom says, the hardest thing I ever did as your mother, I allowed you to get on the plane without a jacket. Because it was 80 degrees in Houston. <laughs> I'm wearing jeans and a T-shirt. And I get up to Boston. It's snowing. And they let you it's, into Harvard? It, fuck, nah. <laughs> okay, exactly. Well, that, that's, that was all, yeah, that's an idiot right there. <laughs> yeah. The Texan shows up without a coat. But no, I remember walking around campus and I went and bought a coat. Sure. Um, but I remember walking around campus and here's our newest building. It was built in 1787. And yeah. And so I, uh, I came back and told my parents I was going to rice. There you so go. Yeah. Harvard did not accept me though. Uh, Mom brought the, the envelope down to school when we got it. And she goes, here it is. And I go, it feels pretty light mom. And she goes, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's an app, uh, an admissions packet. So well, I didn't even apply undergrad. I'm sure I wouldn't have gotten in either. And like I said, it was a total flip of the coin. And, but I go back to, you know, I mean, Harvard builds their business school classes 
um, really looking at, you know, before we started, all started talking about diversity, they were looking for a diversity of experience in the classroom. And you know, that goes back to, I can't help but think a stint in Midland was probably meaningful to getting one of those seats in that, you know, section of 80 people and being a very different background than most of the people in the yeah. room. Either that or they didn't know what it was. Probably. <laughs> more likely. So where do you go after you graduate from business school? Um, so the uh, uh, so I ultimately went to Riverstone, but there was an acceptance of another offer before I actually wound up at Riverstone. So coming out of business school, I really wanted to get into private equity. And this was before there were tracks into private equity. Right. Honest with you, I hardly knew what private equity was. I sold sure. one company at Simmons to a private equity firm, and I was like, hmm, that seems, that seems like where I want to be. And so that kind of put it on my track or on my uh, uh, list. And then, you know, and then you get to HBS and you begin to get exposure to people who've worked in it and, and begin to see things. And you're like, okay, yeah, that, that seems right for me. And I started interviewing and I told myself, I was like, I'm not going to be in the energy business. My father was in the energy business. I watched him struggle to pay off debt and, you know, get through the eighties and God bless him. He did. He preserved his name. He paid every dollar back that he borrowed, but it was a, it was a tough existence. And I was like, no way am I going to do that. But the problem of being in Texas is once oil's in your blood, it's kind of in your blood. And, uh, you know, so I'm looking for private equity coming out of HBS and the private equity that wanted to talk to me was, uh, was an, a, an energy group within a firm that no longer exists, the Beacon Group. Oh, yeah. yeah. Rich Hobby. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So again, a, f- a few people. And uh, so I- Who else was there? Except, was, so John Lancaster that's right, it was is Lanc- the one who recruited me yep. over there. And then as you know, he went to Riverstone and so- that kind of pulls that full circle together. Yep. That's how I wound up. But, you know, Jeff Bozzi had started it. Um, for those who don't know, I mean, if you go and read Barbarians at the Gate, which is, you know, the classic of the buyout industry, and Jeff is one of the key investment bankers involved in that transaction and a former Goldman person. And, you know, Line Rock Beacon, has Goldman people and Riverstone yeah, has Goldman. The, the Beacon Group was basically a bunch of ex-Goldman guys. Exactly. And so it is the whole Goldman Club amongst all of these uh, these organizations that I so, was talking to. So why they talked to me, I have no idea because that was not me. But uh, so I accepted the offer. And then Beacon, even before I've graduated, um, Beacon announces that they're selling to Chase and they couldn't guarantee me I was going to wind up in the private equity group. So Um, I've got a great story about Beacon. Uh, So I'm the oldest four boys, brother number three, Kenny. His best friend is a fellow by the name of Chris Kristinick. So Chris goes to Yale and Chris is a rock star. I mean, he played baseball for Yale, smart as all this. Um, He goes to Beacon, and he's one year into the analyst program when that sale's announced. And what's great is you look back at Chris's career, he joined Tiger Management, and one year later, uh, Julian shuts down the fund. And he's got about four or five of those, so he's like, I'm the firm killer. You hire <laughs> me, you hire me, and, and we're out. That's so. like when I buy a house. That's definitely the top of the market. Yeah, so. exactly. You've peaked. You've peaked. So, I'm good at some things, but like buying a house is not my thing. I um, got you. So, so, so Beacon goes, Be- Beacon Beacon goes, goes away, away, and I 
So here's a, here's a tip if there's anybody who's at who's an analyst at an investment bank who ever interviews with Lime Rock. So my question, I don't know if I should do this, if I should kind of tell them what my question is, but uh, my question- Nobody watches this podcast anyway, so, except my mom. My okay. mom will be ready to okay. interview. Uh, so my question is, tell me about a time that you have faced a moral dilemma and how you dealt with it. And my the moral dilemma that I think of when I ask that question is, I've received this offer from Beacon. I accept this offer from Beacon. Right. And then Beacon sells, Riverstone gets formed, and I get a fall call from Riverstone to come interview, which I interviewed with them, and I get an offer. And so then I'm like, can I do this? And this was, this was, uh, that was a big moral dilemma for me because I, you know, I believe being a man of your word and, and what you say is what you're going to do. And I remember my, uh, uh, I'm a different place in my faith journey today. So today I would start that with a prayer. I mean, that, that's right. how I would make, but back then that wasn't who I was and how I approached decision-making and my wife and I jumped in a car and, um, and we headed up into Vermont and spent a weekend kind of talking about it. And we came back and I don't know if it's the right answer or not, but where I came to was, um, you know, they can't, well, I came back and I asked, can you guarantee I'm going to wind up in private equity? Because I had seven other investment banking opportunities that I had turned down. Right. And I clearly didn't want to go investment banking and they could not guarantee me that I was going to wind up and so wind up on the private equity side, whereas that was my offer at Beacon. So based on that, I said, the offer is not the offer that I had received and therefore it is fair for me to, right. uh, to move out of that. And so I accepted the offer from Riverstone and told Beacon that I wouldn't be coming to them. And there was another, there was a woman in my class at HBS. The two of us had these offers. I don't think she wound up going either. It, uh, you know, yeah. It changed. Yeah. The, uh, just so you know, I was on the other side of that. Goldman gave me an offer and I quit my job at Stevens moving to New York. They called back and hey, we were just kidding. I'm like, what? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What? <laughs> anyway. Wow. But uh, I'll tell that story one day on the podcast when we do a major wine flex. When, okay. I, when I'm drunk, I'll, uh, I'll go through that. But, yeah. <laughs> They're lost. The, the executive committee at Goldman Sachs revoked my offer. Okay. I yeah, look forward that's to pretty hearing impressive. that story. Yeah. You know, because in the Comanche Indian tribe, a, the status of a warrior was based on the status of his enemy. Mm -hmm. So the fact I pissed off somehow the executive committee, five people at Goldman Sachs, is pretty impressive. Okay. Yeah. So your personality is not new and there's clearly a story <laughs> here. And, exactly. Uh, yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, for the executive committee to even know who you are. It, That's what's I so mean, impressive. Yeah. yeah it's so. like, okay, what did he do? So you go to Riverstone. Go to Riverstone. And, you know, I mean, they uh, barely had office space where when I was interviewing with them, they didn't have office space. I mean, it is fresh. They are still in negotiations with the Carlisle Group about, you know, what the a partnership's going to look like. And I, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of laugh. Um, in terms, Who are the two guys that founded Riverstone? It's so David Lucian and David Pierre Lucian and Pierre. Yeah. 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 And so I. Uh, Lucian may have been the person that gave me my offer at Goldman. But anyway, okay. the plot thickens here. <laughs> but anyway, go. keep going. Um, yeah. And uh, so I, I, I wind up over there and ironically, going back to HBS and wanting to be in private equity, and I had applied for an interview with the Carlisle Group, and I couldn't even get an interview with the Carlisle Group. And so join Riverstone. We become the energy group for River, for the Carlisle Group at that point. And uh, so interestingly, 
whenever we would take something to investment committee, Dan Daniello, one of the founders of Carlisle, would call me up to say, okay, so what's the deal? Walk me through the deal. Walk me through the investment committee. Um, And he probably doesn't remember me from Adam, so I don't mean to oversell it. But uh, um, when he retired, I wrote him a note just kind of saying, the irony is I couldn't get a couldn't even get an interview with the Carlisle Group. And if I had worked at the Carlisle Group, probably never would have met you and probably, you know, never would have. But I wind up at Riverstone and I talk to you with some level of frequency because I'm the person who kind of walks you through what the deal is before we went into investment committee. Oh, that's awesome. um, Yeah. And, you know, just, you know, just one of those right time, right place, but the opportunity to learn from, you know, a well-known investor who had an operating background and how he thought about deals and questions and the like is, you know, just one of those unique things. And so I was at Riverstone for almost three years and, uh, and I get a call from. Did Lime you inter- did you interact with Glenn Youngkin any? Uh, I the had governor a, elect the, well, the now governor, the now governor, and, have we had a, and you went, you know him from rice. Right? I went to rice with him. Yeah. Yeah. Glenn played basketball exactly. at rice. He, he didn't actually go on the court and play, but he was in uniform <laughs> on the bench. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. At least he got to wear the uniform. Um, I will say this good guy, smart guy. I, I like Glenn a lot. Totally agree. I had some limited interactions, but again, that's another, I had much less interactions with him than I did Daniello. So if, Dan wouldn't remember me, which I guess he probably wouldn't. Like Glenn, yeah, wouldn't remember me, but yes, uh, and and the same. And I, that's all that I've heard about him is really good. Yeah, and the 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 pay seems to be good when you're employee number seventeen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Glenn seemed to do bad. all right. Yeah. Not too bad. Um, yeah. So three years Riverstone. Um, uh, and a side story on that. So when I was at uh. So my son was born in 2001, a couple of weeks before September 11th. And so we were in the city and uh, uh, the investor conference was going on for the Carlisle Group. And so um, I was a very modern father now that I think back to it. So I actually stayed in New York and stayed with my wife and didn't go to the uh, to the conference because we had this newborn kid. And and uh my first day back into the office was in the middle of the conference, which was September 11th. And so we all know what happened on that fateful day. Uh, but I wound up being the senior most person in the office that day. Um, and you know, it, yeah, I, we all have our memories from that day, but I particularly remember my assistant who had worked at Kenner Fitzgerald and had Oh my you know, gosh. just a gazillion colleagues who are in that building as you're kind of watching oh, everything happen. Um, I had a and, dear friend from business school that worked for American Express. Uh, so she was down in whatever building number six or, but uh, for whatever reason, wasn't there that day. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, yeah. And being in finance, I mean, we, you know, we, we have know. those stories because we know people and the yeah. like. And I mean, I, Maynard Holt was in one of the world trade was he in one of the towers yeah he emerged from a a subway tunnel covered in white dust you know two hours later or whatever yeah oh my gosh so yeah i anyway i don't know what took me there but uh anyway that's a that's a story so uh thankfully got through uh we got through all that with not nothing at all except uh, uh, a story and just very thankful and you appreciate you really appreciate life when you when you have a kid and I know you have three and uh, 
uh, those sorts of things really frame what's important to you. Um, and yeah, with a two week old uh, kid, that certainly all came into focus um, as we went through that. But anyway, good good experience with with Riverstone. So you know Chris Sorrells, right? I who, do. He was a banker at Bank of America, and now he's at Natural Gas Partners. He does energy technology stuff for him. Chris literally on September 10th was racing to the airport. I believe he was in New York to a meeting. He gets to the gate and the gate's already shut uh, for his flight. And he's sitting there arguing, you know, please, 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 please. Somehow the plane comes back. The gate, they open the gate. He's allowed to get on his flight to to San Francisco or where, L.A., wherever it was going. In the meantime, his assistant had booked him on one of the flights that flew into the trade towers. No Yeah, way. so he would have been on that flight the next morning. I've never heard that story yeah. from him. Yeah, in the— Holy cow. Yeah, no, it's to your point about just appreciating life and yeah. recognizing how fragile it is. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we can't forget that and you know, we'll get we'll get later into this conversation and talk about some stuff I'm doing now, but our values and and it all just comes down to interactions and that's one of the downsides of COVID and I feel it in our office today. It's like, you know, we're some people are at home, some people are up in the office. We don't have those interactions and you can just feel the tension because you don't interact with people the way there's a natural edge that we all have because we've kind of lost that. And so events like living through these last two years of COVID or something like September 11th, um, and maybe I don't really want to say there's good news about September 11th, but it becomes a, a exclamation point and focus that helps you come to that. These prolonged periods like we've gone through with COVID are kind of much harder to really appreciate those lessons that we're beginning to figure out after suffering so long of being, you know, remote or communicating through our phones and, uh, and online zoom, as opposed to doing business the way we used to do things. I mean, I read a statistic the other day that said the average high school high schooler today has the amount of anxiety as a institutionalized person back in the 1920s, which Maybe that was hyperbole and all, right. but it is amazing the the amount of of sort of pressure and anxiety that comes with all these things. Nine eleven, yeah, you know, social media, yeah. I mean, you COVID. know, I, I think you and my kids are relatively the same age. I've got a sophomore in college and a senior in high school, and yeah, I mean, you know, my senior in high school has effectively not had a normal high school experience, and my sophomore in college, went to a, he goes to school at Boston College, didn't know anybody up there. And so graduated in 2020 in the midst of, you know, the first right. wave of COVID. And, you know, we all know how tough that was. And then starts at a school where he basically doesn't know anybody and no means to meet anybody because, you know, Massachusetts was uh, much more locked down than we were here. So, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, that's, you know, that's I have just a, I have a kiddo them. in Great Barrington at college. And okay. Same thing. Yeah. Just amazing the lockdown so yeah Yeah. so so you're at riverstone and the phone call comes in from lime rock yeah uh phone call comes in from lime rock and uh they had just raised their second fund were and the first fund just to show you how incestuous all this turned out to be the first fund was a carve out 
from the Beacon Group. Was it really? I didn't know that. It was. The first Lime Rock Fund was a carve-out from the Beacon Group. And, and how uh, big was it? Do you remember? Uh, it was the, it was a $100 million fund, so just sub-100 million, just a shy of 100 was from the Beacon Group, and then there were a few friends and family who came into it Because well. Kane Anderson Energy Fund 1 in 98 was $103 million. There you go. Yeah. 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 I mean... Yeah, different time, different scale, so many different things. Um, so so that first fund was are, 1998. And so how many people are at Lime Rock at the time um, when you get that? Yeah, that's call? a that's a really good question. So you had, you know, you had Farber and Reynolds. Um, they had just, well, they had added a Calgary office after like a year. So we had John Clarkson as one person up in okay, Calgary. Yep. And then as they raised the second fund, they uh, hired Lawrence Ross over in Aberdeen because we wanted, we had, you know, half of our investments from the first fund were really North Sea oriented. So, uh, so Lawrence had come from 3i and ran that office. And then they hired Tom Bates, who uh, I think most recently before he came to Lime Rock would have uh, been the CEO at Weatherford and then sold that to uh, and Terra or EVI to become, uh, Weatherford and Terra. Um, right. and, uh, so he opened the Houston office and you had Pontus Wilfors. Um, and so, and then I joined them and yeah, so pretty small team at that point. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So what was the, what was then. the, what was the thought in joining Lime Rock? Cause I joined Kane just cause it's like, wow, I'm in the private equity club, you know? Right. You know, it was like, you were already in the club and you were getting to choose which uh, blazer you were going to wear. You know? Yeah. Um, no, you're, you're right. And um, I think part of it, well, I think what it really came down to was, so Jay McLean, who was at Lime Rock, um, I had recruited him out of UT to work at Parker and Parsley. Really? Um, okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, if there's power in your coaching tree, then I'm going to claim credit for Jay McLean, who is a <laughs> phenomenal energy investor. And, uh, I, you know, I've got a lot to be thankful for by being partners with Jay McLean. But, uh, um, yeah. And so I'd recruited him there. And so he called me. I had known, uh, I'd met Reynolds and known Reynolds. And so, uh, and then, I'd actually worked on uh, the Weatherford deal when I was at Simmons. So I had met Tom. Again, I was an analyst. I didn't know him right. well, but uh, but I had met him. And you know the deal about private equity. I mean, private equity, it can be a tough, it can be tough to leave when you've been there a while. Right. Um, you know, the vesting terms are onerous and and, and the like. And so um, it happens really quickly when they show you the door, just in case you're curious. Okay, not that, well, not that that's going to happen to I, you. I, yeah, but yeah. I, I, I thankfully haven't faced that. Yeah. But if you want to leave on your own volition, um, these places can be painful places to leave. And right. so, you know, one thing that I like to tell young people when, you know, whether they're leaving us or, uh, you know, if we're just kind of completing an interview is uh, when you think about a private equity job, you know, really think about is it the people, the culture, the strategy, like everything needs to gel because you, you know, these are much more like marriages as opposed to jobs, given the way that the vesting and the like works. And so, you know, for me, I really, um, you know, I really liked what I saw at, um, at Lime Rock with respect to the way that you know, Farber and Reynolds are just a natural yin and yang to one another. And, um, and it was a little bit of a smaller strategy as opposed to what Riverstone was ultimately pursuing. 
And, you know, that kind of fits more of my own personality if, of, you know, kind of getting involved with, as opposed to kind of big buyouts and thinking about all of the finance math, it's, you know, much more, you know, I like to visit with teams. I like to, you know, I think teams drive value and that's what we focus on at Lime Rock. So there was a whole lot of various reasons that, uh, that the move made sense for me. And I that's, just remind young people that, you know, think about all of those things when you're thinking about where you're going. Yeah. We, we used to have a joke back at Stevens where, uh, John Jacoby used to say, you want to go to summer camp with them boys or not? You know, <laughs> right. and it was kind of, cause, uh, it's true. I mean, yeah. Once you, once you're in bed with the vesting stuff, it, it just, it doesn't change. Yeah. Um, the other thing too, that I think happened during that period is we went from being, well, when Farber and Reynolds raised that first fund, they had to get the carve out from Beacon, but they're raising fund number two. They're going into the private capital bucket of an institution saying something to the effect of energy's great. Here's why we're better than buyout or venture or technology. And at some point though, kind of 2005, somewhere around there, we became an allocation. Right. You know, and that really changed the world and the, the dollar amounts just got a lot bigger. So it became hard to leave too because of that dynamic. Because people have always said, you look at Silicon Valley, people leave Kleiner Perkins, start their own firm, you know, tick on down the list. And you just didn't see it that much in, in energy. Because if you really think about it, I mean, back late 90s, it was NGP, NCAP, Lime Rock, Quantum was already around, Kane was around. On had, the services side, SCF was there. SCF and First Reserve, was, First Reserve was yeah. there, and it you know you 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 get pretty pretty far down the path before you start seeing the spinoffs like the Carnelians or yeah. the Edges or the Pearls and no, that's and right. The like. So you've been there almost twenty years. Yeah, it'll be nineteen in February. Wow. Do they give you a watch, a gold watch or something like that? (laughs) We don't have any of those traditions, no. Um, Sometimes I send Farber and Reynolds an email. I haven't done it in a few years. I remember doing it at the 10th and I just sent them a note and I was like, it's been amazing 10 years. Thanks for the opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And you you mainly did service stuff. I was on the EP side. You're on the service side. This is going to be an impossible ask, but I'll go ahead and say it is. Is there any way to summarize kind of that 20 years or the last 19 years in two or three minutes? What was the market like? What was the opportunity set? What did you see change? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, you're right. It's impossible. Because I want to more talk about where we are today in the future. Sure, of but course. I think setting that backdrop is interesting. Um, well, and just to clarify, I probably spent the first half of my time at Lime Rock doing EMP and services and then... Um, the second half of my career has been almost exclusively services. Nobody else wanted um, to do it. You drew, the, <laughs> you drew the short straw. Well, maybe a little bit of that, maybe some of the things that I'd worked on. And then, and you know, and then we had people join the team and leave the team. And we had a number of service deals that needed to be managed. And, uh, and I had the experience to manage them. And so, you know, I inherited a few things that, uh, that I've kind of managed as well. So there are a number of reasons that that kind of came to fruition. But I, I you know, I think to answer your question, you know, it's maybe a little bit of, uh, um, of just, you know, how everything is cyclical. The You know, they rhyme, of course, they're never exactly the same. But like the, you know, my, my first period at Lime Rock, um, 
you know, felt a little bit like things do now, maybe not quite as bad. But what I mean by that is capital was short in supply. I mean, it was still, you know, tough to raise those funds. And then as you addressed, as you moved on in time, those funds kind of came together. But, you know, the first fund that I wasn't part of, you know, that was difficult to get started. And fund two took a good while for Farber and Reynolds to raise. And that's as I joined them. Um, so money wasn't easy to raise. And to your point, there weren't a whole lot of us. And, you know, the world was just a very different world with respect to all we talked about was optimizing this declining production base in North America. And so, you know, the last 10 years of this shale, shale extravaganza and kind of growing production was not in anybody's purview. I mean, you'll recall, you know, Matt Simmons was writing Twilight in the Desert. And, right. you know, it was just like the, the world was coming to an end. And what we had to do was we had to become really good at how we eked that incremental barrel of oil or MCF of gas out. And that meant that services were really important because those services were what allowed you and, and engineering expertise in order to, to do that. And if you think about, you know, some of the revolutionary things that have occurred with respect to our ability to, uh, to, to kind of pull hydrocarbons out of the ground. I mean, you know, you can't overlook the importance uh, from a service perspective of what we did uh, with seismic. And so seismic really opened up the world. And so that, you know, and so, you know, Mark Meyer and I, uh, he's the podcast that's out currently. So the one I, we did it about a week, week and a half ago, I think with 3d seismic, at least in my career, that was the first time there might've been any semblance of sort of alpha in the, business versus before that you were just the inflation hedge you know That's i mean right. all the i mean we talked about this you're you're younger than i am so you may not remember but louis dreyfus the emp company mm -hmm. during the 90s came out and said we've got this great trading organization we're going to hedge out natural gas prices and we're going to lock in a rate of return on the wells we drilled and they traded less than one times EBITDA during that period because the market wanted exposure to the commodity price. And so I think you're right. I mean, 3D seismic was the first time where you went, holy cow, the industry missed this. We can go hit a, a gusher here. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it just it gave us a new perception of, you know, what we were all ultimately after. And so, you know, technology is just amazing. Um, and, you know, and then ultimately we all know what, you know, fracking developments ultimately allowed us to do. And, you know, so there again, that's the combination of, you know, smart upstream engineers working with service companies to, exp you know, get more hydrocarbons out of the ground. And so, uh, sorry, we got off track on what my, uh, what no, my first couple no, of years looked is, like. No, this is, this is interesting because was the, was the point of your investing back then more VC technology type stuff? Because as I recall, because I was never a service guy, First yeah. Reserve and SCF were more buyout. Right. That was more financially, let's pick a platform company, bolt on acquisitions, and then sell it to somebody. What were y'all doing at Lime Rock? Yeah, so there was, we had um, a mix of, of the VC. We tried to, this never works, by the way. We, 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 uh, we tried to get into technologies just as they were commercial. You know what? In the oil field, nothing is commercial until it's truly commercial, and it always <laughs> right. takes longer than you think. And so there was some of that in the portfolio, but we really described ourselves as growth capital. So you've got a service company that's now secured a contract with a uh, a larger 
EMP and therefore you kind of see the work, you've seen the relationship come together and a management team's outgrown their bank. Uh, and at that point they needed growth capital. And I know this is kind of mind blowing because that's not the world we're in today, but that was the world we were in back then. Right. Yeah. And so the assets were all old by that point. There was a new generation of investment that needed to occur and that's what we were providing. And then we were also, and this is where I spent a bunch of my time, um, we were deep value people. And so how did you play hard assets into a growing service intensive business? And so my first day at Lime Rock was on a plane up to Wyoming to start due diligence on a land rig driller that we wound up investing in. We kind of closed it, um, I guess, you know, a month plus into my employment. And, you know, and then it was, and then we were like, it wound up being a good deal. We got pro proactively approached on it to sell. We weren't even at the one year hold period. And so, uh, you know, we, we do care about taxes and the like, and, uh, you know, thankfully by the time you got everything ironed out the, that we did get beyond the one year hold period, but, you know, we put together a land drilling company by taking a bunch of eighties rigs, providing the capital in order to update the pumps on them and, and retrofit, this rig fleet focused on the Rockies because the Rockies were gas short at that time period. So, you know, again, these are just kind of mind blowing uh, ideas, but California actually wanted gas back then. And remember you had the Ruby pipeline that was being right. developed and you wanted to get gas over there. And we kind of saw the Rockies growing and thought, and we had a management team approach us with this concept of they, they had this company, they needed the capital to expand their fleet. And we're like, this makes sense. All of the factors are coming together and, and put it together. And within a year had sold it to, uh, to gray wolf. And, uh, so we did that. We did Hercules offshore where, you know, we're buying, um, old rigs from Parker and we're buying some lift boats and we're creating this new company with a former company's name. And, um, you know, which was pretty, it wasn't a buyout, but it was, you know, pretty sophisticated finance stuff, particularly back at that that time in terms of doing two reasonably sized deals and starting up a company from scratch that, uh, you know, by the time we added the lift boats were, um, you know, there's some international context going into that business as well. But it was really focused on the Gulf of Mexico. And, you know, Parker had a failed sale process on these rigs. We hung around the hoop and um, and then we started we started making diligence calls amongst our upstream friends to kind of say, what is the outlook for the Gulf of Mexico? What's going to happen? And you probably know that we are partners with the guys over at Arena Energy. And so that was one of the calls that we made was over to that team to try to get a sense as to what are the opportunities and um the, the the quote that always gets thrown around, I think it's true, but maybe it's just legend at this point, but it was like, you know, there's not a lot of great opportunities out there for others, but we've got phenomenal backlog and opportunity. And, uh, you know, that, and we heard that from a few different parties. And so that really convinced us that, uh, the activity is going to be there. Let's buy these rigs. And, and, you know, we bought them, uh, we bought them right. The cycle worked for us really well. Um, you know, took that, we went to take that thing public. Um, and I remember we were kind of struggling with, um, you know, what do we have anything that actually qualifies us to go public and how do we get around? We don't have three years of financials. And so, 
you know, what was the original organization and, and working with some smart lawyers to ensure that we could, you know, actually meet the regulatory requirements to get that thing public and, you know, took it public quickly. Um, and, you know, thankfully, thankfully didn't overstay our welcome, but had a really good deal embedded in there as well. And I, I remember, you know, another thing you have to know as an investor is, which Limerock's done a really good job of walking this line, but like, don't, you know, don't believe your stuff so much that you never get rid of it, but also, you know, don't go too soon. But, uh, you know, I remember again, cause I'm services and, and Reynolds kind of is the head of our services arm. Um, you know, I remember kind of saying, ah, I really, really like what we've got here in Hercules. And, you know, he had learned some tough lessons with their first fund. I mean, it turned out to be a very good fund, but you know, there were, it's a portfolio. So you're right. always learning something in there. And and he was like, well, let's not overstay our welcome in this one. And, you know, that turned out to ultimately be, you know, the right thing. And so we had a, we had a good deal. And unfortunately, like nobody is going to get through what all ultimately occurred in 2014 and the like, but tough, you know. Well, you uh, know what I think we fundamentally did wrong, you know, with some hindsight now and uh, getting to be critical since I'm out of the club, but one of the things I think we did fundamentally wrong is we were so hardcore on GNA of you got to have lower salaries. And we were all about these waterfalls that would give us, you know, get us our money back, get us a return. And then we'd give bigger and bigger hurdles. I think it created a weird dynamic in that if you had a home run, management realizes when they're in the high splits, they're like, man, I'm spending 50 cents of every dollar here. <laughs> you know, we're going to sell. I don't need, you know, I don't need a 50, 50 partner. Right. And so we would wind up, I think, selling the home runs too early. Hmm. And then conversely, the other thing we did that was so bad is there was this mystical two times our money. And we would hang on at 1.87 times our money to try to get to the two and wipe stuff out. Right. And uh, and so I I think kind of and we got better about that over time, but I think that was kind of the the to Reynolds's point. Let's not overstay our welcome here. Or you know sometimes if you run a market test and the answer is 1.87 times your money. That's the answer. I think I've heard you make that point on a podcast oh, before. Really? Yeah. Um, it's no, a, it, it's, it's deeply ingrained here. Well, yeah. I mean, sometimes it's the answer. And if it's not the answer, you need to have a real investment case for why it's not, because you are re-underwriting at that point. And, and I kind of make that point because, I mean, you know, we've done that. Um, you know, we did a, we've done a GP-led buyouts of two of our funds, um, funds uh, four and six, and- you know, there, there are times when, you know, we've got, we've held deep conviction and, right. you know, that's worked really well. And, you know, I would go back to fund one again, predating myself, but, you know, we had a oil sands deal that we could have sold, um, you know, at nice multiple two and nice multiple four and, you know, didn't. I think Kane was in that deal with you. If I, if were if they I in remember. that one? We we were in. I I didn't do any okay. of the uh, oil sand stuff. Uh, we had the joke: is my territory was outside the loop, Houston, and the lower forty eight, and then we had other folks that would work inside the loop, Houston, and Calgary. 
Okay. <laughs> so I, ne- I never, uh, I never really did, uh, did anything with the oil sands, but yeah, I remember the same thing of just going, holy cow, we've got this huge win. And you realize in hindsight, that's just a proxy for oil price. That, that is you know? what oil sands, yeah. uh, definitely were. Um, so yeah, I mean, but yeah, I, I don't mean to disagree with your, uh, with your lesson, but I, I do think it's been a differentiator for us in terms of there well, have been a few owned, strategic I, deals where we've I never we've decided Crown to. Rock either. So I mean, <laughs> come on. <laughs> that's like, that's well, like, yeah, there's that one. Yeah, that's like Bill Belichick <laughs> sitting there going, yeah, yeah, I kind of got this Brady guy over here that's not so bad. So uh, yeah, um, here yeah, was my experience with oil field service because we uh, bought a company that had I don't know workover rigs or something in Appalachia. And I went to my first board meeting. I really wasn't part of that deal, but I was the old guy at Kane that had to go sit in the board meeting. And we walked into the board meeting, the CEO walks in and said, well, I've got the results back of our drug test. We lost half our crews. And I was like, what? Yeah. And I was sitting there going, I don't think there's any value I can add here. You know, I'm not a rehab specialist. <laughs> I don't know how to go recruit from prisons or whatever I needed to. So I, I kind of came back and said, can we not do service deals again? Because I just, <laughs> I just don't get it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, services is, it's people intensive. It, it's a yeah. real management experience. And you want to take like the opposite end, which, you know, I mean, we've, we've put a decent chunk of our funds in the minerals. Um Minerals is super efficient from a personnel perspective as opposed to, yeah, I mean, you know, those of us who work in services spend a lot of time thinking about employee issues. And the other thing is funny because you mentioned the waterfalls. I never really understood why the market is so different, but like EMP management teams historically, and I'm really, I'm not really talking about the last five years. I'm talking, you know, there hasn't been many service investments in the last five years, but, uh, but if you were to go back to like, first 10 years of my time at Lime Rock, maybe first 15, it's like EMP management teams were really good at getting these waterfalls. Now they may have created these perverse incentives in them. Man, oil field services, it's like half the promote uh, and there's more people. And uh, yeah, the, you know, services was not good at, at, you know, getting maybe their fair share from that perspective. Um, You know, and I'm clearly a services person because you're going to see it all right here. And, it's like the same thing we do today. It's like we subsidize our customers and EMPs have really good people that they can hedge with called banks. And uh, and then there's these contracts that may or may not hold up that you have as a service company <laughs> with an EMP. But think about it, if you're a service company looking for money, call it, you know, in the, the early 2000s, you can go talk to Ellie Simmons. Yep. You can go talk to Lime Rock. Yep. First Reserve, I think, at that point was already off the reservation doing bigger and, and you know, trying to morph into KKR at that point. Had a little more power over yes. the management teams in terms that's of a, terms. That's a very Cause, fair observation. Because, you know, in fairness, I mean, Kane, Incap, Natural Gas Partners, Quantum, there was just a lot more money chasing the same management teams. Now, right. I think we all kind of wound up later in life figuring out our different niches. But, I mean, you'd walk into a management team's office and blah, 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 blah. All the term sheets were right That's there, right. you know? Yes. And so an extra 5% on the back end would win it. And guess what? The next team would 
get an extra 5% on the back end and it just kept going. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and so that's back to my comment about, you know, does history rhyme or repeat or what does it exactly do? But uh, today, I mean, you know, we, we are sticking to hydrocarbons. Uh, we have Lime Rock New Energy, um, which is run by a separate team that's investing in, uh, you know, the new energy economy. But we at Lime Rock Partners continue to, to look at both upstream and services deals and, you know, services. There's a couple more names that are out there now in addition to ourselves and SCF, but there's, there's not many that, yeah. uh, and there were a lot. And our competition was probably more at one point was more generalist funds that were, you know, all deciding that, okay, we can just underwrite this as a general industrial play. Um, right. you know, when you saw these big leverage checks come in and that's when GE was playing hard and oil field services and the like, and kind of changing the multiples. Um, but yeah, all that kind of competition has gone away. And I think oil field service investment bankers, you know, the, the list that they have to call if they want to look for a financial party is pretty short. Yeah. So what are investors saying today? Because, you know, I, I get some feedback because I still talk to LPs these days and um, it just seems dreary. I mean, we've had the red problem that we as an industry outside of Lime Rock. This was really funny. I was talking to Farber the other day and I was going on my rant about how it's all just beta you can't create alpha. And he goes, no, Chuck, let's rephrase that. You can't create alpha in the, <laughs> in the energy business. Fair enough. Of course, I did my default. I did the Silver Hill deal. Oh, Whatever you go. But, you know, we, we had the red problem as an industry, lost a lot of money. We've got the green problem in terms of, uh, in terms of that. And I always hate to say, you know, this time it's different because it never is. But this time it just feels different that it's more pessimistic when it comes to the capital what are you kind of hearing yeah. out there from lp world and yeah i mean look my my general sense is doesn't really differentiate from what you you basically said it's a challenge um uh you know i mean it, you know amongst the endowment and foundation crowd the e SG, but in particular, the E is a big issue. And, um, you know, to me, it's like right now, I'm not sure if there's anything that we could do absent being a net zero industry, which seems all but impossible to me that you could attract those dollars today. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, we, we have not been a big, a pension group, but I think that there is a more open eye, um, you know, from those maybe individual or groups who will write maybe some of those larger checks to at least entertain it. But we'll see. And I, I don't know. I remain confident that, and I think it'll be healthy, but, you know, my prognosis is this is going to sort itself out naturally. And the way that's going to happen, I mean, you know, energy was the outperformer today. I think energy was up 4%. And I, I really don't pay attention on a daily basis. But right. as I was driving over here, uh, I had CNBC on and they were talking about the outperformer and, you know, energy was strong last year. And, um, you know, and it's a little bit of what I wonder about green energy is ultimately returns do matter. And right. we were in that shale period and we got over allocated. And, but really, what did we do? And, you know, I'll talk about this later too, probably, but like the free markets worked. So 
capital allocators decided they wanted exposure to energy. They liked what they were seeing from shale. They pumped a lot into it. They pumped too much into it. And the capital markets, the energy capital markets subsidized the U.S. economy with respect to super low cost energy that, you know, because we had too much capital chasing these opportunities. And I can't help but ask myself when you look at what's occurring with green energy, is there also kind of this similar just kind of rush to anything that's labeled as green and therefore it attracts the capital uh, effectively valuation be damned from my perspective. And, you know, I probably don't spend enough time looking at that stuff to really say that, but like that would be my high level observation. And of course there are winners as that market is moving up, but what does it look like after a decade? Because you and I both know there were also a lot of winners in the early phase of shale as people were flipping these investments and moving them. And is that really any different than what you saw with with a, you know some green companies winding up into SPACs and kind of just walking up the uh, the capital ladder, and so I remain somewhat optimistic. I don't think I don't think we'll ever get the allocation that we used to get, but nor do I think we need the allocation that we used to get. Um, and so I think there will be fewer players uh, playing in the market, um, and that will be a result of you know two things: we don't need as much, and not as many people are going to be interested. But fundamentally, returns do attract capital. Feels like this industry has really understood that lesson. We'll see, but you know, I think my the perspective that I bring is that I mentioned earlier is like the service companies are still struggling for that return, and. The EMPs have gotten it, and those who have balance sheets that are workable are now very focused on reducing debt and making distributions to shareholders as opposed to on the growth wheel. And that's, a, I think, a healthy discipline that I don't see going away um, absent what you and I always have to deal with is what in the heck happens with OPEC? And right. then, you know, the other thing that I know is going, yeah, I can just read it on your on your face is... But what about demand, Will? Like, where does demand ultimately go? If consumers are really thinking about, you know, they don't want hydrocarbons. And I just think we're too, uh, we're too early in the energy transition to get away from hydrocarbons as quickly as people uh, think they can get to uh, get away from them. Now, and, I haven't done the math yet on yeah. this. I know I've mentioned this a time or two on a podcast or on uh, the big digital energy show. I haven't done it either, so don't ask me because okay. well, but, but, <laughs> I won't have so a great answer ball, for you. Ballpark it with me, though, is I think the amount of precious metals it takes to truly, for all of us to drive Teslas and for all of us to electrify everything, let's set aside for a second that we're burning natural gas to generate that, yeah. that power. I think to mine all of that, the amount of diesel you need to do that is probably more than the cars on the road. And the reason I say that is in the middle of the Congo, you can't just go plug into a socket. You're in the middle of nowhere. You're running it all off diesel. And so I'm not sure. It, I, I, I see. I, Colin McClellan has made me a believer. I think electric cars went out just because of performance. I drove a Tesla for six years. It was a great car. Couldn't go to Austin so well, but outside of that, um, it was a great car. So I actually think electric vehicles just went out on performance type stuff or went a, a large market share because of that. 
But I think at the end of the day, they're made out of a bunch of petroleum-based products and the precious metals needed to do all that, you got to mine it. Yes. And you mine with diesel. I, well, yeah. But unfortunately, the story gets told, oh, no, we're, we're, we're doing everything electric. And they're just ignoring the diesel generator that's right there <laughs> right. that's doing everything yeah, with electric the, motors. I love the memes where you've got the diesel generator powering uh, the Tesla car. Right. To go. Oh, yeah. So, okay, I got another theory I'm going to throw at you since right. we're... So, as recently as Tuesday, I was incredibly pessimistic about energy being able to attract new capital. I've been running around preaching, your cash flow's it. So watch every penny, watch every nickel, watch every dime. I think I heard a story that I'm willing to think about, and I might even start buying off on it, is because my whole premise is we're 3% of the S&P 500, so nobody cares about us. Right. And so to your point, returns matter. A CIO doesn't have to worry about 3% of the S&P 500. So a CFO will never, or a CIO will never lose their job because they didn't beat the index because of messing with energy. You know, you'll, you'll 3%, you probably don't even have to buy energy if you don't want. Maybe if you do, you buy Pioneer and Diamondback. Right. You know, so, but here's the thing I've heard that kind of gives me hope, and I want to get your take on it, is we're seeing, presumably right now, kind of this rotation out of tech into value investing. That seems to be happening right now. I've heard that the average value investor, their portfolio, 11 to 12% energy. So it matters to the secular rotation that's happening okay. here out of technology. And now I realize that I, in a very articulate way, just said, if technology starts sucking, we may get some money. But I think that's, that, that, that's a possibility. Um, that's been the headlines for the last two days. Um, if you, you know, just again, listening to those news shows, that's effectively been the rotation, right? Uh, tech's been underperforming. People been moving into value. You know, you drive into the office in the morning if you're actually driving into the office and, uh, you know, Bloomberg's got whatever analysts kind of talking about that's the trade of the day. Um, I didn't actually know your stat about where value is invested, but if that's the case, then that makes a lot of sense to me. And yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I know I'm talking my own book, but I'm very much a believer in terms of the, the EMPs have it figured out right now. Um, and, you know, so capital coming in from a valuation perspective is good. Said differently, capital coming in, uh, on a secondary basis, I don't want to see a ton of capital coming in on a primary basis and just kind of adding to capacity. I think, I think we're not there yet to kind of know that we, you know, how much incremental capacity we're going to need out of the U.S. I do think we've probably taken, as a globe, we've probably shortchanged our little uh, ourselves a little bit over the last few years, and there could be, you know, and and you know, Goldman and B of A and others who kind of talked about, you know, some pretty high oil prices that could hit us on, you know, some sort of a term basis. But, you know, for you and me, me you know, we don't really like to model out. You might fantasize about what <laughs> those super high prices look like, but, you know, you're building, building out these models that are looking kind of five and 10 and years out. And, you know, so what's an average commodity price to look like? And I'm, you know, I think there's a healthy discipline now that if that capital rotation is happening, 
that's a secondary base that's not yet giving the well, yeah, it's it's not resulting in the IPOs and all of the fresh capital that could really mess things up. And I think that's right. And I actually think it holds. I do too. Which which that shocks me. Having yeah. been in this my my whole career, I think I think that uh that actually holds. I think another thing though that we have to do that's part and parcel of this, and it leads me into the next thing I want to talk to you about, um, is I think the financial discipline, I think providing the returns are important. I think something else that's really important is we somehow have to get the narrative back. Um, I've said this a million times on the podcast. I get mocked for it, so I'll just say it again. I'll look right in the camera and just own it. But, you know, my three children have lived the greatest life. I would love to come back as one of my children. And I have heard you say this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all because of oil and gas. And if you ask them tomorrow, hey, do you want to get rid of oil and gas? They'd say yes yeah. in a heartbeat. Um, we just lost the uh the the narrative. And the interesting thing about losing that narrative, and we can analyze it all we want. We're an industry run by a bunch of engineers that can't tell stories. We didn't tell anybody what was in frac fluid. I think that was kind of one of the big first things the environmentalists got. Uh, we can talk all about how the other side just doesn't trust us and the like. But I think that's really important, and it's something we need to take very seriously. We need to figure out a way to go through all the wonderful things we do and at least have a balanced discussion on this transition as opposed to us just getting regulated out of business. Because I'll tell you, I am a big believer in the, the bull run coming on commodity prices. And uh, if we have $150 oil and everybody makes a lot of money and we act like you know jerks that we have historically, it's not going to end well for us. It's going to end in windfall, profits, taxes, more regulation, et cetera. So I, I, I share those concerns. Um, I, I have no followers on Twitter, but I'm going to mention my, my Twitter just because I have a feeling you, you have a few, so maybe, but I'm at Will Franklin and I got no followers, but when we were watching the championship game, uh, and the energy transfer commercial. Do you remember the? Yeah. Did you, yeah. yeah. And where everything starts disappearing, and it's like, I, I'm a huge Alex Epstein fan, and the moral case for fossil fuels, and Schellenberger, and Apocalypse Never. Um, we create tremendous good for society, but we have totally lost the narrative. And you know, when when things haven't gone perfectly. We probably haven't owned them soon enough. Um, maybe that's your point on like frac fluids. Like, you know, yeah. there wasn't really anything in there. What 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 were people so worried about, right? And it's like it was recipes that people were were really it's worried water about. Water and sand. Exactly. You know, I mean, exactly. Yeah, I, so, you know, but they all thought they no had this proprietary, yeah. um, you know, name your service company that like had their recipe that they wanted to protect. But um, I think the challenge for us, because I like Alex Epstein a lot, I'm not sure, and I don't mean this derogatory about Alex, but I'm not sure how many people he convinces. I, I f have this feeling that whenever we discuss energy advocacy, we're in an echo chamber. Yeah. And we're that's, all sitting there, fair. you know, going, God, that's great. That's great. And I think, was it 
Dan Pickering who tweeted out, or no, it was uh, Paul Sankey, tweeted out the energy transfer commercial and said, hey, do you think that worked? I think it was Pickering who said Was that. it Pickering? Yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. It was one of the one of the two smart people. Because I replied, yeah, I think it's a start. And most people are like, no, we're talking to ourselves. I mean, yeah, no, because that's that's uh that's really interesting. Cause I think that's that's the challenge is how do we take call it 15-year-old to 30-year-olds that have no idea what goes on to get their iPhones to come on or so they can get on line and play roadblocks or whatever right. the complexity and the the necessity to do that or all the the intricacies that go into doing that and that's a hard thing that i don't have an answer for no i look i don't have any genius answers for it either but it does start with somebody collecting the data and pulling together the information to share and so if that's just being shared amongst the echo chamber, at least it's actually been pulled together because nobody else has been able to actually support what we all kind of knew intuitively. And, right. you know, I think, I think those people have, uh, have done that. I think, you know, the other side of the equation and part of why nobody cares is everybody is totally bought into, um, you know, CO2 is, is going to kill us and it's mankind's number one challenge. And, if you question that to any degree, then you are immediately labeled a climate denier. And, you know, these, you know, labels from either side are just not useful. And this, you know, and this kind of brings me, this has gotten worse during COVID, right? Because we're all now in echo chambers online. That is a curated content based on algorithms that, uh, you know, that knows what you like and therefore serves you up more of it. And that kind of further isolates us. So we got to get people back actually together. And so this is just kind of fundamental human beings working together, how that's ultimately going to translate into hydrocarbons kind of defending themselves. I'm not wholly sure. Um, but you know, that's also part of, uh, you know, part of the reason that, you know, I wanted to be here today is I, I do think that, you know, I think it's important that people have spent their careers in the industry kind of stand up to talk about how important the industry is and are doing that from a regulatory with regulatory influence, uh, not to defend the industry and make sure that it gets a crony special treatment, but to ensure that people understand when they're making you know calls for legislation, what are the long-term impacts? And we all get caught up in the movement of the day and what we need right now, and we kind of forget about the cascading uh, follow-on effects. As investors, like that's one thing we're taught to always think about, right? It's like whatever we do today, we need to be thinking about, you know, particularly as private equity where you're not recycling that money. It's like, what is this going to mean at my five-year, my seven-year, my 10-year exit point, wherever that exit point comes? And let's make sure that we don't do something that gives us a decision tree that looks really bad, you know, when we get three years out. And, and my fear is that because hydrocarbons have effectively become so shamed that uh, that we take short-term decisions. And I think a perfect example, um, and I just read this the other day, and so one, either I should have known it, or two, it's not true. So everybody should go and check and make sure. But 
we know that Europe right now is facing an energy crisis. And, you know, and that is brought on by the fact that the wind hasn't been blowing, that they've been moving toward renewables. And it's also been brought on by the fact that there's been an underinvestment in hydrocarbons. And let's take Germany in particular. Germany's been taking their nuclear plants uh, offline and retiring them early with, I think, maybe over a decade left in their expected life. And what I heard about that recently, um, which is the part that needs to be kind of figured out, but that Angela Merkel had um, had a close election and was being challenged by Greens. And one way that she wanted to overcome that was by saying, well, I'm green too. And so she agreed, I don't know how long ago this was, that uh, she basically made this policy move to let's let's get rid of our nuclear. Well, that's a policy decision made years ago that's now unfolding today. The technology's not there from a battery perspective. The pipeline's not there and is under dispute with respect to Russia. And, you know, does Europe want to be dependent upon Russian gas or not? You know, that's a big question, which I can understand why people would be asking that. But they're asking it too late because they took their baseload off the grid. And that's a problem when the wind isn't blowing. And see, I think how that all comes about is we've lost the narrative we've been excluded from the discussion so cuz i talked about this with the texas ERCOT situation on my year end summary is i think the big miss that texas did that europe's doing now is we no one was there to say hey guys reliability matters there are days when the wind doesn't blow what right. are we going to do on that day and you know, I think the uneducated energy person was, huh, there's no difference between solar and wind and, right. and, and hydrocarbons. And so this whole notion of baseload versus peaking or interruptible, whatever you wanted to call it, I think, think happened. And so the thing I wanted to ask you about, and I always love visiting with you, but I wanted you to come in on, you're actually doing something about it, which I think you're certifiably crazy to do, but, but let's talk about this. You're running for the state house in Texas. I am. Yeah. And uh, that's what most of my friends say. You're crazy. And why would you do that? And, uh, you know, I've been in energy for almost three decades. Last decade has been really tough. And, you know, so my standard answer to oil and gas people is I've withstood oil and gas for the last 10 years. How much worse <laughs> can it be? Um, and I don't really know yet because I've got to I got to get through an election to see. But it's uh, it's been a, a a new world, but it's this energy stuff that really, really drove me to this position. And, um, you know, I, with my kids, I've sat around the table for 20 years. My eldest is 20 talking about things that are important to me. And one of these things is energy and energy policy. And, uh, I feel like the nation is taking the wrong turn um, and I'm fearful that the state may take the wrong turn, particularly as our electorate, you know, changes. And part of it's changing for a really good reason. We still do have largely a capitalist system, a low regulatory system. And, you know, that create that promotes entrepreneur uh, entrepreneurship and attracts people. And so, you know, we're seeing companies move here. Um, that's bringing jobs. That brings opportunities. All of that's good. The unfortunate thing is those people you know, everybody worries. So I'm running as a Republican just to make it clear where I am. Um, and, you know, Republican concerns are, is Texas turning blue? Um, and, you know, when I think particular about energy policy, I'm really concerned that 
you know, these people are coming without an understanding of how important hydrocarbons are to Texas's economy. And so, um, you know, and, and wh what do I mean by that? So uh, direct and indirect employment, this is from a study from PwC, I think, and this is a pre-COVID, so 19, but 22% of Texans were directly and indirectly employed in the hydrocarbon business. So super important to our employment base. We're not fully diversified away from it. Um, with respect to uh, county taxes and mineral uh, royalties, um, oil and gas is, provides, and this is a Texoga number, but uh, $14 billion um, to the state uh, last year. So, you know, that's a meaningful- Schools, roads. That, and that's yeah. where I was going. That, that finances our schools. Everybody wants their kids to get a good education. That is one- now, we may disagree in terms of how we get there, but one area of agreement, because it's good to talk about where we agree, conservatives and liberals both want to ensure that our kids get educated. And so how does that happen? Well, hydrocarbons are important there. Our infrastructure, if we want companies to come here, we got to have roads that work. Uh, and infrastructure ha is funded through, uh, through hydrocarbon taxes. So yeah, this stuff is very important to us. And, uh, you know, and, you know, so like what I like to say, and maybe I've already said it on this hydrocarbon. The other thing is a politician, you say the same thing like 20 times a day. It's like fundraising for a, yeah, for exactly. a fund. And you can't remember, like, did I say this in the conversation or not? But, uh, um, by the way, fundraising, I always had to have a script. <laughs> so whatever page I was on in the pitch book, I knew what I was going to say. And if any of the marketing people, interrupted, took me in another direction. After the meeting, I'd say, hey, that's great. If you don't like the script, I have no pride of authorship there, but let's not change the script in the middle of a meeting because if you get me off track, I'll tell the same story two and three times. And I love Mike Hines. I mean, he's still like my brother today. Mike got in there and just started talking. I mean, during <laughs> fundraising, I'm like, no, 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 script on page three, we do this. So yeah, yeah. no, I you'll you'll learn that. The other yeah. good thing you'll learn about being a politician is you get asked a question, right? You repeat the question, and then you, you say have what a you bridge. Want to say. You have a bridge statement, and then you say whatever you want to say. Yeah, so. I've, I've kind of found that uh, I'm I'm working my way into that, and I've never, I've never been the great fundraiser for uh, for Lime Rock. I'm not the good storyteller and the like. And I, I that's one of the things that I I told the team is like when I embark on this, I absolutely hope to win and I'm not doing it for a vanity project. I've never been the popular guy in the room. Um, that's just hasn't been, you know, I'm naturally an introvert, happy to go talk to people. But, uh, but I told him, I was like, look, one thing I will be much better at is sitting in front of people and asking them for money because you know what I do every day, all day, I call people and ask them for money. I mean, you just can't have enough money to run a campaign. And then, uh, and then I, you know, my evenings are events or whatever. And then my weekends are out in the community, knocking on doors, uh, saying hello to strangers and finding out, you know, what's important to them. And that's, that's like one of the really interesting parts of running for office is a lot of people don't want to talk to you. A lot of people aren't home. But people do open their doors and people open up their hearts. I mean, you know, people are worried about things and they meet somebody who uh, I do care. So when I say pretends to care, I, I don't mean to say that I don't right. care. But when somebody's at the door, you know, when somebody's at your door, you don't ever really know how genuine they are or not. But uh, but people are are worried and they're ready to kind of talk about their things. And, they, and you just get this like this feeling 
Um, and but one thing that I would say about it, which goes back to our conversation about energy as well, is you know, there's angst and concern, and nobody's really talking about hope and opportunity. And so, if you want to talk about one thing that the other side does better, and by the other side, I mean the Greens, and I also, from my perspective, I'm talking about liberals, but they're better at talking about caring for people and like this sense of empathy and the like. And what I I think it's great to be a conservative in Texas because we do have a hopeful message to offer up. And this is what I think we have to seize on if we can get beyond the echo chamber that you referred to for energy. We have a very positive message for society to deliver if we can figure out how to deliver it. But I also feel that as a conservative here, we have this entrepreneurial system, this capitalist system that's working. If you watch Fox News, all you're going to hear about is, you know, the evils of socialism and the like. And, you know, that's an area where a lot of conservatives get their news. And I share a lot of those concerns. But like, if that's how we're going to attract the next generation of voters as conservatives, we have a challenge. And so let me cut you off real quick. Give me the stats of what you're running for. What what house seat is this? Sure. Geography, et cetera. Yeah. So it's uh, state of Texas, District 133. It's effectively the Memorial Village's memorial out through the energy corridor. So I 10 is the northern border, Westheimer is the southern border, goes out to George Bush Park or Highway 6 out west. And then the eastern side, it's kind of Chimney Rock, kind of north of San Felipe. And then it almost goes to the Galleria south of there. So that's the general area and where I'm running. And who's the existing So Jim rep. Murphy is the incumbent, um, and he announced his retirement back in September. And with a you know retiring incumbent, there's pent-up demand, I guess I would say, amongst people who want to run. So I uh, – and I was the last person to enter. Um, so there are four competitors plus myself. So – I'm a free markets person, and the voters are going to have a free markets choice. There are five of us to choose from, uh, which, you know, I think I think it's good. And uh, look, I obviously think I'm the better one or I wouldn't have gotten into the race. But uh, it's not one of those races where I think um, voters are going to have to hold their noses. I think there's some good opportunities, and, and I think the district will be well represented. And the Republican primary is in effect the election, right? It if I'm guessing be. this is a what? A sixty percent Republican it's, it's an, seat. It's a yeah, sixty-five. It's Sixty-five. It's an R plus yeah. fifteen sort of district. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I got you. So, how? So back thirty years ago, when I was at Rice, I managed five campaigns for state representative. And what the name of the game back then was was you got your voter roll, mm-hmm. and so you knew whose house you were going to knock on. But it was literally door to door retail pro- politics. I mean, you were sending them a letter saying, hey, I'm going to be in your neighborhood over the last cu- next couple of days. Mm-hmm. You'd knock on doors. You'd chat with them. You'd uh, send them a letter afterwards saying, it's great meeting you or sorry I missed you. And that was literally how you did it. Because you had back then, call it, I think 125,000 people in a rep district. Only half of them were registered to vote take it beyond that only half of them even showed up to vote so that's 30,000 and then when you looked at you know kind of the democratic primary voters you wouldn't go talk to them anyway and the republic in a general election the republican primary voters were going to vote for you anyway it was actually a pretty small swath 
So you literally could go knock on a, on every door. How is that changing with technology? And yeah. are there elements of that still around? The, that is still, I mean, of all the advice that I've gotten, including from uh, from the incumbent, it was very nice to spend some time with me. Um, he's like, nothing replaces knocking on a door. And when I knock on doors and talk to voters, the consistent message is there's only one other politician who's ever knocked on my door, and that's Jim Murphy. So uh, uh, I take that as as a good sign. Um, you know, it's interesting you say that because I've got two block walking stories from back in the day. So I'm going to recruit you three, if you can clean up. <laughs> I, I, I actually might be able to help you with some mechanics on walking because what you want is you want somebody walking with you that's got the clipboard, can keep the notes. And they actually ring the doorbell when you're walking up. So you, there's literally a system to this that I was pretty good at back in the day. So I'm happy to come, come right. walk with you. Uh, it's interesting you say Chuck's that. Chuck's going to be taking my notes. There we go. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, it'll still be a volunteer <laughs> job like this one. So that'll be perfect. <laughs> no, but uh, it's interesting. So a couple, two or three of the campaigns I ran we're in effect West U Bel Air state okay. rep races. And when I would go out with, uh, I had a couple of candidates in there. When I went out with them, they would say the same thing. They would say, no politician has come and knocked on my door since Tom DeLay. Tom DeLay was the greatest block walker. I mean, he had a pest control business that filed for bankruptcy in the middle of his first state rep run race. Yet he knocked on every Republican primary voter's door twice. The guy was a machine. He got him twice himself? Yes. He Ooh. was a machine. That's on yeah. that. The other great story, because around that time when DeLay first got elected to Congress, uh, another young candidate running was a prof an economics professor from North Texas State named Dick Army, who was running up in Dallas. And a buddy of mine was his consultant. And so... You know, Tom DeLay would hit, you know, in a three-hour period at night, 175 doors. I mean, he was just a machine. He had a great spiel, you know, all this. Dick Harmy was hitting like two or three. And so the consultant flies in to say, what's going on? Turns out Dick Army was going in, having pie with the people. Because they'd say, you want to come in and have some pie? And Dick Army would say, sure. And he'd talk for, you know, two hours to one voter. But, uh, yeah, no, it is, it is retail. Uh, yeah, I... And I haven't fully worked out that art. Um, uh, I can't. I can't imagine getting 175 doors in three hours. Uh, I think, well, we target significantly fewer than that. Yeah. So that, that's tough. But it's still the same thing. Um, the math, you know, a um, house district now is roughly 200,000 people, and then you've got the kids. So you know, you kind of reduce it down to the voting population, and then you got to depend on okay. Is it a primary or a general? Um, and what's going on? So in a uh in a a year where there's not really a big race on on the uh the ballot, then you might get a primary turnout in, you know, in our district of maybe fifteen thousand people. And you but in a republic in a in a year where there's a presidential race, you're gonna get probably thirty thousand people who kind of show up. So we do modeling and now, you know, and the data analytics is a big part of this as well. So yeah. I've got it. I mean, I was computer printouts, like, like literally the green and white paper with the holes in the side. Right. Yeah. 
So I, yeah, I mean, my consultants, we have uh, voter turnout models where we're kind of modeling who all's on the ballot. And, you know, this year we've got a, a competitive at the primary, there's a competitive gubernatorial race, attorney general, general land office. So those are big Texas jobs, right? And so, and you've got, you know, four Republicans, you know, going back to Glenn Youngkin, who we mentioned earlier, um, you know, I think Republicans kind of feel like there is going to be some swing their way coming, which generally happens in a midterm election that, uh, you know, the, the party who owns the White House doesn't perform as well. And so there's an energize in the in the Republican base that will probably bring a higher number of voters than would normally be in just a gubernatorial year. So uh, so we have our models. I won't give you the exact number, but that kind of ranges where it is. And then you're then you're kind of looking at that. How does that break down across households? And then how do I touch those households? You know, obviously I can't get to, you know, so, you know, let, let's say, let's say we think there'll be like 24,000 people show up just to, just to take a number. And that's 24,000 voters and people are married and then they, some have voting age kids who are in there. So maybe you're looking at 17,000, 18,000 houses out of that. Like, that's impossible for me to hit 18,000 houses, um, starting in November, um, or pretty much next to impossible. Uh, but you know, I am out there as much as I can. And then we're doing a lot of analytics on, okay, of, of the people who, who turns out the most frequently. And then we're doing polling of issues as opposed to things that I'm talking about to try to identify because a big chunk of it is just getting your turnout. So finding those people who share your position of issues and then, and then getting them there. And then the other thing that we get to use today is targeted digital. So, uh, um, you're not seeing any of my ads, but if you were a Republican primary voter living in my district, then, you know, they can effectively, they effectively know devices at least to a, an IP address, which is a household. And so we know if we've got Republican primary voters at this address, then anything that uses that IP address is likely a Republican primary voter. So we're targeting digital ads to those people that and you know this is very important to me because I'm the least politically known of my uh, amongst my four opponents, and so it's really important that I quickly build name ID. And it's like everything in life; it's all come down to data analytics and how you uh, how you find the right people and deliver your message well, to and them. Quite frankly, too, I think it's important from an educational point of view that folks ought to know who you are. When they when they walk sure. in, know what you stand about, um, et cetera. I I always, you know, when I would talk with candidates about it, yeah. I mean, the selfish side is I want to convince somebody to vote for me and then turn them out. But I think the democracy side of it's really important. Of you need to go tell those people what you care about, so that when you get elected and you don't do it. <laughs> they can call you on that's it, right you know that's right and i think i think so so i think that's that's the other side of it that's really important yeah i mean you know i'll knock on doors and a lot of times i'll get oh yeah we're republicans and i'm like well hang on it's a republican primary you're gonna have five of us to choose from so just being a republican isn't not isn't enough you got to figure out whom it is that you want to support amongst the five of us and this is like another lesson learned i mean you know Civics is so important and, uh, you know, we do not plug in enough at the primary level and we all 
not all, but there have been numerous elections where people have been frustrated that they show up in November and they don't like their choices. And the question is, how are these our choices? And the answer is, you got to get involved at the primary level in order for you to get choices that you like when you wind up there in November. And unfortunately, that requires work because the ballots are lengthy and, you know, you don't have two people. You've got five people in my case that you've got to research and kind of figure out. And that takes time. And obviously, you're not going to do that on every single race, but you better find the ones that are important to you and go and figure it out. And that way you'll be much happier when you show up in November to kind of say, okay, you know, I feel like this, my choices are representative of what I would have expected as opposed to, I didn't get involved and I left it to other people and, and I'm not happy with whom I have to I choose from. I think that's from. a fair ask. Yeah. I really do. That, that, that is a fair ask. Cause you know, to some degree when we sit around and say, we hate our politicians, it's like, well, we voted for them. I yeah. mean, you know, it's Well, a not lot of people want to say our system's broken and the two-party system is broken, and it definitely has issues. But one way we can take responsibility to make it better is just educating ourselves at the primary level. Yeah. And it's, and, and it's interesting at the, the retail level because one of the things I think that is way underappreciated is we sit there and we watch Fox News, CNN, whatever, and we see these politicians – Nancy Pelosi, McConnell, whoever, and we go, oh my gosh, they're idiots! Look at that, they 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 misspoke. I've actually ridden a elevator with Nancy Pelosi. I've uh, I got to chat with uh, Jesse Jackson, and I'm trying to think of people that are politically different than me. That I've got Donna. I got I rode an elevator with Donna Brazil one time, and the thing that's amazing about him. They're incredibly charming. I mean, Nancy Pelosi and I laughed the whole time. And if it wouldn't have been inappropriate, I would have said, let's go grab a drink. You know, and, and you forget just how incredibly charming these people are at an individual level. You are not the Speaker of the House of the Congress right. and not able to charm someone right. on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Right. And so, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, I think that I thought you were making a declaratory statement that I am not the speaker of the house, and I'm like, yes, you're right, and I probably <laughs> don't yet. have that charisma. Not, but, not uh, yet, <laughs> no. But I mean, it's just, and uh, where I was going with that is just, you know, being at the retail level, all politics are retail, and it's very true. Yeah, it it is, and and you know those those statements, I think are true. I think you can look at politicians on both sides, and charisma does go a long way. Um, I think. You know, it's, I think character should trump charisma. I think that's something that we have to remind ourselves. And you want a mix of all of that with some wisdom and experience. And, you know, to me, if you're kind of describing your ideal, you know, these people are leaders, right? So your ideal leader, you want, you, you want a mix of all of that, but charisma goes a long way. And these are short periods in which you got to make a decision, right? I mean, yeah. You didn't, you didn't explore the race. The person showed up at your door. They talked to you for a few minutes and you're like, huh, I like that person or no, I don't. And so I'm choosing a different name. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of times that's how votes are made. It particularly, you know, the country still has, it is still largely independent. And so, you know, those of us who tend to vote, you know, more partisan, by the time you get to November, you, you pretty much know whom you're voting for. But uh, if you're an independent and, and, you know, you are, trying to figure out like that, that can really differentiate your ability to, to kind of drive the vote is, and you know, at 
from a partisan perspective, that takes place at the primary. It does. So I'm going to leave issues to the general type politics for another forum for you. You can go talk about those things because I think most of my audience are energy-based folks. Let's spend just a bit of time on energy policy when you show up in Austin, and we can go back and forth. I think, number one, Mm -hmm. we have a real problem with uh, stranded wells, abandoned wells out there in terms of, I mean, we've been drilling wells in Texas since the 1920s. Um, You know, we plugged and abandoned a well in the 50s. There's not an engineer out there that'll say cement lasts for an entire lifetime. You know, we've got temporarily abandoned wells that have been temporarily abandoned for 12 years and the like. Yeah, you get to to see all this. I think it's a real issue. I think it's something we're going to have to address. Any thoughts on uh, maybe what a regulatory framework would look at? And I come at it from the view of we in the industry really need to figure that out and we need to self-police and or do it at the state level or else the EPA is going to come in and that's not going to end well for us. Yeah. Uh, your last point is probably one of one of the driving motivators for myself in terms of I want to keep the federal government out of what I, as I said before, view as Texas's economic engine. And so I don't want them to use backdoor federal policies in order to get into our business. Um, You know, that has effectively been handed over to the Railroad Commission with respect to, you know, who has administrative authority over it. But, you know, I I can't disagree that we have, let's forget all the wells that have already been abandoned, but we have a bunch of wells that ultimately are going to need to be abandoned um, relatively soon, maybe absent the uh, recent uptick in prices, but uh, (laughs) stripper wells suddenly, (laughs) suddenly seem a lot, a lot more interesting um, than they, than they probably did. But, you know, I, I, I remain, look, I, I, I remain much a believer in free markets. And, you know, this, I think, is one of these clear messages that's coming from investors. You know, if you want to talk about some of the stuff of E that really does make sense, that isn't just like greenwashing, it's like, you've got to be a responsible operator from, you know, the moment that you lease land and permit that well till the moment that you fully abandon that well. And, uh, um, you know, I mean, you know, because you've been through it from a diligence perspective, when you're buying things, we're always worried about kind of chain of title and is something going to come back to me and ensuring that, uh, you know, that things are sold on and moved to uh, responsible operators so that we don't wind up wearing something in the future. And that's particularly a problem for perpetual entities, uh, you know, public companies and and private companies that are family owned that aren't going anywhere. They, you know, they want to be. So there are some natural reasons why the industry should care about it. It's not as though, you know, those of us in the industry know, it's not as though we all just kind of go about our job saying, this doesn't matter and I ought to ignore it. Well, um, and, and I want to give us props because we take enough grief in private equity. I actually think private equity was really good on that front because we would go into a new area there's a wolf camp bench that we're going to drill brand new horizontals on. 
first thing we did was clean up all the old infrastructure because it wasn't going to help us. And we knew if we were going to turn around and sell that asset, we were in we, effect going to have a total examination by the buyer. Right. And so we did a lot of good work on that. I actually think where horizontal drilling and modern fracking wasn't done is more the problem as opposed to where it was done. Cause we seem to, you know, we always knew we were going to sell that to somebody else. That's, so yeah. yeah, we should get credit for that. that. Uh, agreed. Agreed. We, we I'll go. take the credit. There we go. Perfect. <laughs> I'll take a positive. Perfect. Um, yeah. You know, I would say one thing that really drove me into, you know, wanting to get into this is really the, that intersection of federal policy. And it's, you know, it's why I don't disagree with you that we need to take care of this stuff internally before the feds get here. But one of the things that the feds are doing to Texas's hydrocarbon business is, you know, some kind of indirect things. Obviously, we don't have federal lands. We don't have those issues that New Mexico and Colorado have where drilling moratoriums really affect our business. But, um, uh, and, you know, and this is clearly where one of my own biases will come through, but, uh, but I do think it's important, um, you know, but what we are seeing is we're seeing federal energy policy that is very geared toward renewables. And um, I think that while there's a lot of causes, none of, you know, we'll probably never know all of them, but there's a lot of issues as to why we had our debacle in last February with respect to winter storm Uri or Uri or however you say it. Um, one of, I think, the challenges is we've had these federal production tax credits for wind that have effectively incentivized a lot of wind to come onto the grid, and they've taken away the profit opportunity for thermal generation. And as a result, when profit opportunity goes away, reinvestment goes away. And, you know, we talked about earlier the importance of reliability. And so as as you have more renewables coming on, we're losing the reliability. And that reliability, I think, comes from the hydrocarbons. And, you know, particularly, you know, coal, moving from coal to gas, and just a side note, Toby Rice wrote a phenomenal letter to Senator Warren, if you didn't see it. Right? I did. Okay. Yeah. yeah, really good. And talk about really making change is, that's why I wonder what the real end game of of climate change awareness is if uh, if they really want to improve the planet, just moving everybody to. I've said it multiple times on the podcast that if we truly wanted to do something, the United States with our little brother, brother Europe needs to sit down with China and India and say, no more coal, but we get the fact that we got here sooner, we'll finance natural gas infrastructure for you. And we're going to have to take somewhat on the, I, I don't think it's an unfair ask for China and India to say, hey, you got to cut us in on that because you guys got to benefit from your long run of cheap coal. We should get to do the same. I could actually live with some sort of subsidy there. Now, devil's in the details on all that. And I get that China's our enemy, but, it, but, but <laughs> right. at the end of the day, if we truly wanted to do something about CO2 emissions, that's it. That's the big game that, changer. Those are the big game changers. Moving them from coal to gas is the massive game changer. If you're, yeah, if if CO two is like the chief concern, um, and so I question what are people's chief concern. But anyway, that that's the the big move, um, which brings me back to you know Texas and 
you know, between 21 and 24 for projects that, you know, have been proposed, it's 38 gigawatts of renewable energy to be added to Texas's grid. It's one gigawatt of thermal generation with a base load based on population add estimate of six gigawatts. So we are continuing to add renewables, I think largely driven by, you know, subsidies, create incentives. Right. And, uh, and I think you can't discount that. And with those subsidies though, we are adding destabilization to our grid. And I think that's a, uh, I think that's an unfortunate result of federal policy, but we are going to pay the price of it. And I think, you know, that's important because none of us want to go through another February and, uh, and let's be, let's be really frank. I mean, that is another form of a regressive tax because, I don't know if you have one or not, but you know, even though you're not collecting a paycheck, you probably could have a generator if you wanted to have a generator. That's not a choice for most people to right. have a way to get through a period like this. And yet, you know, we've got policies that are driving these changes before the technology is ready for it. And and so that's an indirect way where federal policy is impacting something that is very state specific. And I think that's really bad. Because I think economy ultimately trumps all. And that doesn't mean there aren't a whole lot of other issues, which I'll talk about on another forum. Um, but over the medium term and long term, the way that we see eye to eye with the other side, no matter how you define the other side, is by having opportunity. And opportunity, I think, is defined as economy. And Texas is winning right now. But if we have an unstable grid in the future, these businesses that are coming here are going to quit coming here. And so we need to be cognizant of the incentives that are in place. And if it's not a Texas incentive, but it's a federal incentive, then we need to figure out in the state house how we can fix that. And I think there's a, I, I don't have the master plan, but I do think there's an element of ensuring that the cost of reliability is burdened by each form of power. And right now, Renewables are not burdened with a reliability charge, which is therefore causing too much of that coming on. And, and I think, you know, so that's an incentive that way, the wrong way. And it's a disincentive for more investment in thermal generation, all of which, you know, is ultimately, I think, going to be harmful for our hydrocarbon business. And again, I don't want to go be a crony for hydrocarbons. I just want a free market energy transition. And we're not experiencing a free market energy transition. And that results in issues like we had last February. And yeah. The, uh, in my year, year end summary of the energy business podcast I did, I said really what the whole mess was in February with ERCOT is we were just trying to be good neighbors to the relocated Californians, make them feel at home. <laughs> you know, we can mess up energy too, guys. Don't worry about it. It's not just you guys, but yeah. The, uh, so one other energy policy thing I want to touch on, because you, you hit the things I want to talk about. We were, I, I when you get elected, I'm actually going to come to Austin. We'll go eat at Franklin Barbecue. I'm going to push you for a no system. relation, by the way. I oh, wish. that's true. <laughs> the the uh, uh, Aaron Franklin's actually a really nice guy. Is I don't he? know if you've gotten to meet him. I've gotten to meet him a couple of times. Just the nicest guy. And really a barbecue geek. I mean, truly just yeah, loves it. Loves I believe I, I can make a pretty mean brisket though if you check out my Instagram feed. But uh, nice. I, but I'm not an Aaron Franklin. <laughs> nice. 
the um but I think the push on uh cleaning up the abandoned wells as much as I hate. I'm I'm I've only voted for a libertarian for president in my life. I've never voted for a Republican or a Democrat. I always vote for the the libertarian. So I'm a big free market guy. I do think there needs to be an element of kind of just more enforcement by the Railroad Commission to the rules that are already on the books. And I think if we get in a situation, I think our budget right now is about $30 million a year that the state pays because, you know, you sell something to somebody else, they go out of business. There are stranded pockets where, where there are issues. So there may need to be more money from it. I do think, to your point earlier, though, is the industry shouldn't be the one to just pay this because, let's face it, Amazon benefited from the fact that we had cheap oil prices. And so there needs to be some sort of sharing of the burden of that because it wasn't just oil company profits that that need to be burdened. Well, you come to Austin that, that, and that, let's we'll, have we'll a sit do down that. and we'll, we'll, do that we'll problem over. solve it. That, that we'll, uh, we'll talk that. And then the the last thing, energy related, and so we then we talked about ERCOT, which I agreed. You know, the thing I also did on the end of the year summary is, and I did it in real time when the ERCOT mess was going on, I went to the websites and got the actual wind speeds going on at various spots. So like the Amarillo Airport, um, down in South Texas where Los Fintos, the, the largest wind power. And I was pulling all that. You need 10 miles per hour to generate any electricity. And really the nameplate's about 25 miles per hour that you need. I mean, around Amarillo, there was one six-hour period that averaged more than 20 miles per hour wind during that kind of week and a half, two weeks. Yeah. I mean, the wind just didn't blow. And that's what's happening in Europe right now. Yeah, it's that's like, exactly yeah. what's happening in Europe. And I'm actually pro-wind. I, I, I think we should have, I think we need more of everything. It's just, we've got to focus on the reliability aspect. Because to your point, I mean, people die. Well, if, yeah. If 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 we if we don't have enough power, I, I will I will rephrase your pro win to simply say I'm pro free markets and I'm pro private property rights and private property rights go down and they go up as well. And so if that's p what people want to do with their money, I think I'm all for that. Right. And that's why I call it a free market energy yeah. transition. Yeah. No, I think I think that's fair. The one other issue that you'll have to deal with in the state house that right now I think we're a leader on, um, and I think it's very important we stay that way, is just Bitcoin mining. Because if you look at the 35 gigawatts of renewables that are going to be built, a lot of the justification to that, to your point, is the tax policy from the feds, but it's also serving Bitcoin mining. And I just think that can be a huge industry, growth industry for us. It allows uh, those renewables to be built and actually have opportunity uh, there. Because, you know, I think we've only got 12 gigawatts of transmission from the Permian Basin to where the people are. So that's going to have to be uh, built out as well. And so I think having an energy person at the table when we're having those discussions uh, is going to be really important. I, uh, yeah, I, I agree. And federally for my district. So I'm in currently in what's called district seven, which was at the federal level, George HW Bush's seat. Um, 
it's going to be redistricted into uh, District 38 because they took Westview and Bel Air, which are now the more liberal part of the district. Those have been carved out and been left with District 7, and we have this new District 38. Uh, but my whole point in saying all that was uh, uh, it was pretty shocking to me when I went and looked and saw that from a federal perspective, there's nobody in D.C. from either side of the aisle who comes from the energy business. And when you think about federal policy is so focused on energy policy right now, and there's nobody from Texas with an energy background, um, uh, you know, sitting up there, that was a pretty surprising revelation to me. And, you know, so as I was looking at this statehouse and looking at, you know, my competition and didn't see that experience and knowing how important energy is to Houston and to our district, um, yeah, I thought we need to have somebody who's at the, those tables kind of talking about it with some informed perspective. And and even if you, you know, none of us can know everything, but there's also a benefit when you spend your entire career in an industry, there's a benefit of relationships that come, right? Where you at least know the right experts to tap and begin to, you know, you can come and sit down and you and I can talk about and you can share your ideas and you can probably bring, you know, three or four CEOs that you back to kind of talk about what we ought to be doing on well abandonment. And, uh, um, you know, and we can get there on Bitcoin as well. But the point is, you know, you need somebody who's informed, who knows, has a decision making framework that they use. And you and I know we're very good at using help when we need help because we don't know everything. And that's part of what private equity is, is kind of acknowledging what you don't know, identifying the risks, finding people who do so that you can assess that risk and determine that you're going to get paid to take that risk. And that's, we need some of that in Austin. Because I still think the most effective thing the other side did is they convinced the world that the only reason wind and solar don't power everything is because the big bad oil companies won't let it happen. Instead mm -hmm. of there are truly differences, qualitative differences to the power gen the power generation from from both sources. And so you're right. I mean, not having anyone at the table to just say time out. Right. <laughs> the sun doesn't shine certain days. The wind doesn't blow on certain days. Which is fine, but we got to solve for that, and batteries aren't there yet. Right. So. Yeah. So give me the details um, in terms of where can people go to find you on social media, the web, when's the primary date, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I'll keep it really simple. You can go to willfranklin.com. All my social media is linked at the very top. Um, so that'll get you to everything. Uh, but Twitter is at willfranklin. Um, and the others are versions of Will Franklin for Texas, but getting into the spelling, just find it on the website. Um, the election is March 1st. Early voting starts Valentine's Day, February 14th, and it goes through the 25th. If you're not yet registered to vote in Texas, you have to be registered 30 days before election day. Um, so I would just say get registered now. You've got That's two weeks left. Up. So get yourself registered so that you have a voice, um, you know. Even if you're voting in the other party, like get registered, be an active participant and then complain all you want when you're unhappy. But if you don't participate, I mean, you know, talk about going into an echo chamber. It's like, what are you doing if you're not participating and then complaining about how bad everything is? So I would encourage you to do so. And of course, I would love the support on March 1st. And so I want you to register and come out and vote for me. And if you want to give to the campaign, do that as well. So. Appreciate you coming on. 
I've known you a long time. You're way too fine a person to take this advice. So I'll more tell it as a story. Okay. When I was running a campaign for state rep when I was a senior at Rice, it was the Republican primary for the Westview Bel Air district for state house. Three great candidates. Tim Turner, who's a landman in the oil and gas business, you may have met. Kyle Janik, who's a doctor, sharp guy, good guy. And Mike Shelby, who unfortunately has passed away, but he was an amazing human. He was a district, an assistant district attorney with Johnny Holmes. Then he was a U.S. prosecutor, and he was the guy that they sent in to do the heavy-duty drug cases. Mm. I mean, so anyway, three amazing candidates. I was working for Mike Shelby, and uh, this is the uh, the thing I, I pulled. Uh, so... I was out one night and with one of Mike Shelby's friends and we were putting up yard signs because, you know, you go block walk all day and the people that would say they'd take a yard sign, you know, nine o'clock when you shut down walking, go back, get the yard signs, drive back out, you know, put them out. Right. So we're, we're doing that. Yes, I'm doing still it. Still do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm doing that with one of Mike's friends and uh, Mike's friend sees, uh, you know, Tim Turner signs and goes, man, I can't stand that Turner guy. And he starts knocking them all down. And he's like picking them up, throwing them in the back of the truck. And, you know, I'm a senior in college, and this is a 50-year-old man who may or may not have been in law enforcement, so definitely a you know man's man. So he's getting rid of all the Tim Turner signs. So anyway, we put up the Shelby signs, and we drive back. I drop him off, and I was worried about that that night. And I didn't know, do I go tell Mike about it? Do I, what do I do? So I actually went and got some Kyle Janik signs and put them where the Tim Turner signs used to be. And Tim and Kyle went to war. Their two camps spent the whole time tearing down each other's signs. And they kept calling uh, Mike, can you believe that, you know, Tim's doing that? Can you believe Kyle's doing that? And, uh, and uh, anyway, uh, at the end of the day, I, finally fessed up to Mike after the election. Mike, Kyle wound up winning and Kyle wound up being state rep and then a state senator and all. And I was like, yeah, I kind of did that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll say, you know, time has moved on. So, <laughs> you know, one, a person it, well, character it. matters, but two, like everybody has a ring doorbell. So you yes, will be on camera. Be uh, and that's one thing when you're knocking on a door, you're on camera immediately. So yeah. you, you have to, you have to remember that. But, uh, but two, it does still happen. I uh, sign went up uh, for me in one of my uh, supporters yards and they left their house at 11 and they came home at three and it was gone. And it was like, really? And yeah, I mean, you know, that's campaigns. Uh, is. They go away, unfortunately, but I, I don't do that. I told that story last because I don't think we actually keep that in. But <laughs> it, anyway, I, I, I knew it was <laughs> yeah, funny. After you said I was it. knew it. I knew it was funny, but it, it was <laughs> as as I told it. I go, yeah, that's yeah, not, I'm so, not that's not something that. that's going to get cut in. Yeah.